Afternoon Montreal. Uh, you're listening to CKUT on 90.3 FM on the radio or online at ckut.ca. Uh, specifically, you're listening to Movement Museum, a show all about dance in Montreal. You can find us at movementmuseum.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and all that good stuff. I'm Alison Burns, and I'm here with uh, JD, my fellow co-host. And uh, later on in the show, we're going to actually have a big announcement um but we're gonna let you little you know sit and simmer in that for a bit there just uh just uh know that you really do want to stay tuned because at the end of the show there's going to be there's going to be some big news big news big news so anyway, let's get on with uh, the content of the show today. As always, uh, well, not always, but as we enjoy doing quite frequently, we have an interview today with a wonderful contemporary dance artist. Do you want to tell us who it is? Today in the studio, we're welcoming Thea Patterson, who's a, a choreographer, performer, director, collaborator with uh, the group um, The Choreographers. She's one of the founding members of the, the group Choreographers, who is pretty well known. And um, she is here with us today because she has been, well, she's the assistant to the creation of Peter Trotzmer's new piece. Well, actually, it's, I, I shouldn't say new piece because it's a remount of the piece that he presented last year at Tangent called Esti. Uh, Myth, Myths and Machines. Um, hi, Tia. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Did I pronounce that right, Esti? Yeah, Esti. Okay, perfect. Um, so why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself, Thea? As you said, I'm a choreographer, director, dramaturge, rehearsal director, wearing lots of hats uh, within the community and the dance community in Montreal. I'm originally from British Columbia, moved here, went through the Concordia dance department and finally settled here with Peter quite a long time ago and uh, we've just been forging our way working together collaborating together on lots of different projects as well as our individual projects um, yeah and so why don't you tell us a bit about uh, SC this piece that is being remounted again at Tangent uh, this it's starting tonight actually it's premiering tonight I got my tickets already. I'm excited. Um, Esti uh, is the Estonian word for Estonia. So the piece is um, sort of inspired by Peter's Estonian heritage and uh, specifically his grandfather's escape in a small boat in 1944 from an island off the coast of Estonia called Sadama. He took... Um, Peter's mother was about two months old and his aunt was about two or three. And uh, obviously his, his grandparents, they uh, escaped off the coast of the island in the middle of the night in 1944, leaving behind some other family members who weren't able to be on the beach at that time, and they had to go. When they had to go, they had to go. So it's sort of a, a piece of, about Peter's... Uh, relationship with his grandfather who he knew as Isa and the the myths sort of come from um, these stories that these these stories of that have been passed to him about this uh, escape and and then intertwined with that is Peter's uh, own coming to terms with his own uh, inner hero his grandfather was a hero he, he actually took people across that he was in the Estonian resistance and he would he would take people across to Sweden quite regularly 
before they escaped with the, with the family. So it's kind of, um, we sort of jump back in time between Peter's sort of not nearly so grand hero moments just living in an urban city and these stories of his grandfather's very truly heroic acts and um, and, and all of the kind of history of uh, torture and escape and war that Peter didn't experience but that he feels still feels is present somehow in his DNA so that's uh, that's sort of the medium sized answer <laughs> and um, what, what did you think of of using storytelling as a choreographic tool because this is very much what it's about this this relationship to to stories that are passed on to us how did you approach this when when creating movement well the stories came in peter originally it kind of happened in a backwards fashion he he originally started with the machine and this sort of idea of wanting to create a because there's a large sculpture that's involved in the performance and It kind of started from that um, machine as kind of a, a moving sound environment that he was trying to create, and it and it's interesting how creations sometimes come into being in terms of things happen that you didn't set out to happen, and that's kind of the beauty of it because I feel sometimes that actually the work itself has has its own collaborative voice that you have no control over. Um, So it just kind of happened that this this research into his family started to fold itself into the piece. And, I mean, we actually tried to resist it at first. Oh, it's two separate things. But it was insistent. It wanted to be in there. So that was, you know, and then we went through the process of, you know, dealing with a lot of text and how that can be complicated. And, and in terms of the movement, it was, uh, we don't want to literally represent anything with the movement. So it's more of a an abstraction of, of the text, um, or of the stories and an embodiment of it in, a, in another kind of way so it's it's sort of subtle but it's it's a, a strong thread between the two somehow i guess does that answer your question yeah and uh, that that machine that you mentioned i mean i i saw the show last year when it was first put on and it's a really impressive machine like it's 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 a sculpture but at the same time As you said, it, it creates sound, and it's manipulated. And in a way, I feel that, well, at, at some point, Peter uh, ties himself to it. Uh, how did that come about? Because it seems to to be something that takes that has so much presence on the stage with Peter. Like It, it really feels like there is uh, almost this discourse between the machine mm -hmm. and the performer. Well, the machine happened first. It was like the first thing. Jeremy Gordon, the visual artist and sculptor, made it. And originally it was really um, kind of a crazy music. It's a musical instrument, really. And uh, we actually didn't get to work with it that much because you need, to be, you need to have a special space for it. But Peter would go and often play it in, in a space where you can't move with it because it's just too dirty and too dangerous. So he kind of got to know the machine through making sounds with it. And then when we brought it into a space where we could work with it physically, it actually happened quite quickly. He was already connected to it in a way. And it was rich in metaphor. They just started to kind of come off the machine as boat, the machine as in, in torture device, the machine as a mode of communication. He uses it kind of as a way to amplify his voice. Um 
it moves across the stage, you know, so it represents migration, immigration, all of these kind of... So it's it has many layers and many levels. And what was the challenge of working with that machine? Did it ever feel like it was uh, keeping you back in, in the creation of a dance piece? Um, well, in, in practical sense, in that it's really awkward and big and hard to move and very unprecise. Like, it's it's patched together with bits of found objects and garbage and it's really kind of dangerous a little bit it's not a it's not slick so uh if it ever breaks i really don't know how we're ever going to make another one for instance or you know so get moving it around is difficult so on a practical level and there was a point in the process when we weren't working with it when we were working the text and the movement and having to imagine the machine where we you know we had moments of panic where we were like How, how are we going to integrate it? Are we going to be able to integrate it? Um, and, you know, there was some doubt whether we would, we would be able to do that. But then, like I said, as soon as we got it into a space, it just happened like that. It just felt completely right. So. And during that year that it took for the show to be put on again, did you go back to the machine at all? Or is it just something that stayed dormant until it was to be awakened again for this show? No, it stayed pretty dormant. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah it was dormant. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> And, uh, I mean, like, when you, when you get the chance to put on the, a, a show again, like a year after, there's probably some some digestion of the first time you uh, presented the show that, that comes in. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you approach this, like having this chance, this opportunity, but also this burden in a way to put on the show again? Um, well, it's actually really great to have a chance to do it again because you do learn so much doing it once. And it's inevitable that when you go back to it that you're going to You're going to deepen everything. And Peter and I went through this process um, with the show Norman, which was a multimedia show that toured quite a lot, and we had to often come back to it. And we sort of developed a process of coming back to where um, it's where you're working subtleties and, and, um, and really getting in deep to the, uh, to the physical connections that were actually fine as they were but there's it's it's continual process so little little changes that you might not be obvious to someone else but that really actually do do add up after a time and you find new things you know such as um such as if you oh there's like there's some sort of movement pattern that he's doing with his feet and his hips And then you re you you've been watching it and watching it and it's fine, but you're just thinking maybe that there's something. And then you've discovered that it's actually about the shoulder. And then, you know, he makes a change, shifts shifts something in the shoulder, and suddenly the whole thing just is able to. It's just that much more clear and physically in the body. I don't know. Or uh, with the text, you know, like um, working the text and. Making just making small changes, nothing too drastic. Yeah. 
And uh, Peter got a chance to go back to Estonia this summer. Uh, did you go with them, actually? No, not this time. Okay. This time, actually, it was quite special because he went with his mother and his aunt, the two that were um, born. On the boat. Yeah, on the boat. Um, it was quite emotional and quite different. And they have more language skill in Estonian than Peter, so that was helpful, even though they were very shy at the beginning to speak. But it gradually it became necessary. So they went back to the island, and um, they discovered a, a living relative uh, that they didn't know about, uh, the daughter of the Peter's great-uncle who was tortured and killed in the castle in uh, Kurasara in, on the island of Sarma. So that was very emotional. Um, they went also back to the east where the aunt that was left behind is in a nursing home. She got left behind and had to go into the eastern part of the country to work. It's close to the Russian border. It was not a fun life. So they went and saw her in her apartment, which had been pretty much... Everything had been taken out of it by the neighbors because she's not there. They were able to find a few things that they brought back. Um, you know, it, it was just a sort of a process for Peter of almost finishing the story in a way. We went back the year before. It was me, Peter, and our daughter. And uh, we sort of just scratched the surface of that. But I think the trip back with his mom and his aunt was really important for everyone. Yeah. And for people who wouldn't be aware, such as myself, actually, what was the context like in Estonia at that time? Like, what brought people to have to leave so quickly exactly? Um, well, let me see. I hope I might not get it exactly right. But um, basically, Estonia was sort of being juggled back and forth between the Russians and the Germans. Um, it, it shifted back and forth. Estonia was a country that was... Um, colonized many times. It was never... It's a, a liberated country for very long ever, historically. So there's sort of a history of that as well. They're kind of, not to make a stereotype, but gentle people. And uh, the Germans and the Russians were playing out their thing there, and they were using Estonians to do it. So they were conscripting and getting Estonians to fight Estonians on either on the German side or on the Russian side. There was, and that created a lot of suspicion. So Estonians started turning on each other, and there was a lot of secrecy, a lot of, um, of uh, people turning in other people to save themselves, and, and a, lot of, a, a lot of escaping, people trying to escape. Because Peter's family was, lived on an island, it was much easier. They had, um, but you go back there now, and you can see that there's... Um, towers all around the island where there was guards posted and they used to rake the beaches so that they would be able to see any if ever there was footprints in the sand and and uh, things like that um, yeah it wasn't a fun time I mean I guess with uh, a situation like that the the question of identity must must be quite heavy especially for someone who is Canadian-born, such as Peter, but who is a descendant of Estonian origin. Uh, do, do you feel that that question of identity, like what, what are his roots, 
to Estonia? Like, how is he connected to Estonia? You've mentioned DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, how did that influence, like, his physicality, his creative process? Oh, it, de it definitely did. But I, it was hard for me to say exactly because that's his experience of it. Um, but... Uh, There's a, there's there's a hugely strong it's it's amazing to see them the how much he feels like he's Estonian and and how important it was for him to kind of I think there's this thing that you do as a first generation Canadian too where you're kind of you kind of push it aside I think when you're younger you know you don't you don't identify that way um, you kind of reject it maybe even like and. Uh, So there's sort of a reconciliation with, with that. How that ties into his creative process, it's hard for me to say exactly. It's very, it's really personal. Uh, I'm a, my role is really to kind of assist from the outside and and to and to work more more in a more um, objective way about what I'm actually seeing and whether I feel it's resonating or you know. Yeah, so that it's hard for me to exactly say. You guys have collaborated quite often, I would guess, both as part of the choreographers and together in, in creations. Um, how do you feel that your creative process together has evolved since you first started working together? Um, it's really refined itself. Uh, I've worked on... He's done three solos, and I've worked with him on all of them, plus on Norman, which was another solo with, uh, which had directors as well, but we were together in charge of the movement part of it. I mean, we're also a couple, so it's complicated often. It gets pretty hairy sometimes, but uh, I, I guess what's amazing about it is there's a, there's a, a level of trust that you don't often experience, uh, and a, a level of, or an ability to, of honesty Um, that you that is just a given it it, it would be very difficult to break you, and uh, that gives you a lot more freedom I, you know many collaborations you have you have to kind of there's a certain of care not that we don't take care with each other but it takes a while to get to that point where you where you maybe are as brutally honest or you I don't know exactly, but uh, we've evolved in that we get through things faster. Um, we have the same... Like, he knows when I... He doesn't question... He, well, he questions me all the time, but at the base, there's we understand each other, so we know that globally, for the thing, that we there's no concern about having a sort of a different idea of what we're doing. It's, it's hard to put your finger on, but... Uh, That gives you a lot of freedom, I find. Yeah. And do you have a new project coming on together? Together? Nope. Nope. Or separate? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm working on an. I'm working on a new solo project, which uh, I'm, I'll be doing in January. A little work in progress, uh, open showing at the Maison de la Culture Plateau Montréal. And then I'm going to show something at the Judson Church in, at the end of January. Uh, and then we'll sort of see from there. Um, 
but uh, I think Peter's he's going to do another version uh, he, actually what he's going to do is he's going to do an installation type project with the machine more as it was first intended as a musical instrument which would be a more of an installation gallery type event where people could wa- wander through and perhaps interact with the machine also and he might show up at certain times and something might happen but it wouldn't be a performance that has a beginning and an end so he's in he's in in sort of talks with some people about about putting that up for instance we might do that in peterborough at uh, public energy yeah which i'd like to go back because you mentioned that you're going to be presenting at uh, the judson church is it your first time ever presenting there something yeah it is how does it feel because there is such a mythical i know quality to it how do you feel about that Well, I'm very excited. It's uh, you know, it's it's the historic Judson Church, and it hasn't. I mean, it's it's a still has at its core this kind of experimental um, place to you know try try out ideas. It's not a. It's a you you have only up to 15 minutes, and it's really low tech, and so I kind of appreciate that it still has this kind of like it's still holding that place in the in the community as a place to go. Is it your first time presenting in New York City? No, the choreographers were there um, a few years ago with um, Man and Mouse. And that's it, just the once, I think, if if I'm remembering. Yep. Did you get to see a few New York choreographers or did you get to explore the scene a bit when you went to New York? It was very fast. It was sort of an in-out. So this is basically for you like a wide like a whole new thing that you're you're going into the scene into something mm-hmm. that is so historic um do, do, you, do you feel that it's a scene that you could connect with do you feel that, that you're coming with this whole outsider perspective to the scene there well i i don't know i mean i i, I um i had a show at tangent a few years ago and i shared the program with an artist from new york um, named julian barnett and uh, made a good connection there. Um, so, the, I mean, there is, a, and I have another, another few other friends who are dancing in, in New York City as well. So I don't feel completely alienated from, in terms of, in terms of that. But I'm not super familiar with what's happening, you know, conceptually or experimentally. I saw a wonderful panel uh, online with some really amazing theater artists, female theater artists, um, talking about being um independent yeah, having to do it all and running your own theater companies or producing your own and presenting your own work that I thought was really inspiring some really interesting women talking about really interesting ideas and paradigms for presentation in a very difficult economy and etc so that was I mean that was interesting to me in terms of what's happening on that end and I mean in a way it's interesting because with ST there there is that whole outsider coming in uh, energy to it you know like a, a, a f- an immigrant and who is looking back into this do, do you feel that sometimes there is this quality that, that is lacking for people who present on their home turf do you feel that like having this sort of outsider knowledge gives you an edge in in creation i don't know if i'm being clear mm. with my question well I, i think it's always good to see what's 
happening somewhere else. I do feel like it can get really insular, no matter where you are. If you're, you know, if you, if you're in in a community and you're not ever seeing what's hap- what's happening, I mean, yeah, it starts to go kind of in a circle a little bit, possibly, or there's the potential for that. Uh, thank you so much, Thea. It's uh, it's going to be time for a break. Uh, so we're going to go on break. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to Movement Museum here on CKUT 90.3 FM. Uh, I'm Alison Burns here with Jidi Papillon, and we're running Movement Museum for the next uh, half hour. Uh, we just had a lovely interview with Thea Patterson, and, uh, and she's on her way out now. And we're going to move on because we've got more business to take care of, especially to do with reviews, because... Like uh, like you've been hearing last week and the week before and all that, it's high season. A lot of shows. Yeah, it's that time of year. So we're having fun running to and from shows and bringing you the results. Um, and just another reminder that you really want to listen to the end of the show today because we've got a big announcement coming up. Big news. And whether you know, you're know you following us on, on Facebook as well, you will have a chance to hear it after the fact, but I just want to tell you that you do want to stay tuned for the official announcement at the end of the show. I mean, at least for the pleasure of our lovely voices. Exactly. So, So, which review would you like to start with, J.D.? You know what? Let's start with Trois Romans, because I think uh, we're going to have quite a bit of discussion there happening. Sounds good to me. So, what do you think of the shows? (laughs) Uh, For for audience members, actually, uh, for listeners, uh, we went to see the Trois Romans Retrospective at Usense, which were uh, three pieces by Nicolas Quentin. A few weeks ago, we had Ashley Watkin, who was performing in two of those pieces on the show with us. So the pieces were Grand Singe, Belle Manière, and Migal. And, uh, so it's a work from him uh, in 2009, one in 2011, and a work from this year. That's right. Uh, Miguel was, la- was first presented at the last FTA. And uh, it's... It's a marathon. I mean, that's the first, the first thing I'm going to say to you. And everyone who went to, to see the retrospective is, I think, going to understand what I'm saying there. Uh, his work is very draining intellectually and emotionally. And, I mean, just sitting for almost like three hours, four hours straight. Um, mm-hmm. Each you know, work was an hour long with like a little intermission yeah. between them. So you're ending up investing, yeah, like about four hours on your Sunday. And... It's 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 worth it though I feel to see all three pieces in a row because there is a strong signature to Nicola's work but there is also an evolution for sure and it's it's such a shame that we when when for the most part when pieces are are created at this niveau they just disappear once they've been once they've had their weekend show they're gone so it's nice to have it come back and you're absolutely right it's so interesting to see the evolution over 3 years where where his work goes and and what he what elements he keeps what elements he develops and which elements he discards from work to work it's really a cool experience and i wish we had that experience more often to see the progression of a of an artist that way yeah, he's been lucky because uh, he got a residency at the usency and that's how he got to remount all of his three projects and bring them back together and it's rare that you get a full retrospective waffle like a retrospective of three pieces like that in one day it, like you don't see that much happening in dance world and uh just to get back to the pieces, uh, two out of three for me were like really, really hit the right spot for me. 
so those would be Grand Singe and Belmanière, whereas Miguel left me very cold. Perhaps we should take a minute just to describe kind of the, the general the style of yeah. the three, because um, it, I don't even know if it's billed as dance. It's a, it's, it's a difficult categorization for the piece. Kante uh, himself has a background in uh, improvisation, clowning, and circus, and the works um, are really action-based uh, with strong characters um, and, and lots of props lots of kind of sound collages and um yeah just a lot of action and a lot of patience a lot of stillness and a lot of uh silence a lot of focus on details like very minimalist body movement uh which is meant to say a lot and uh when when we had ashley on the show she mentioned how things in his shows are so precise and so like just you know, um, you have to just bring the right kind of emotion of embodiment mm-hmm. in the performance and that it it can actually be really draining because you have I to imagine. put your mind to it so much. I did write a review of the show for bloodyunderrated.net, which you can look up. And, and in one of my opening paragraphs, I, I kind of made that justification that it's difficult for me to, to review it in terms of what I've seen, but rather I took the approach of what it made me feel because it is how the performers perform the actions that they're given that that makes the work it's not necessarily what they're doing it's how they're doing it and with what intensity yeah i mean presence is like the fundamental question to me in Kala's work and for this he gets so much out of his his performers um for for a piece that lasts an hour where not much is happening you know like there's some painting one's own body with uh, with black ink uh, you know there's a bit of voice of speech but quite often it's almost nonsensical and uh, some you know and there's also like some darker energy going on at times like the relationships can be quite dense and quite heavy uh, to, to see but they're I mean they, they keep you invested in mm-hmm. the work throughout and for all three pieces, this is something that that just happened where, you know, you, you, you stay pretty much glued to your seat even throughout the, the more quiet moments. Yeah, and I think it's through those kind of quiet, delicate moments that he engages you. Like, it's it was it was hard for me to really get into Miguel, which is the latest work. Um, it was the other two that really drew me in because it's very, um, it's disarming. And it lets you in, and then it kind of makes you feel and at first I was very put off by what was happening on stage but then it kind of starts to make a lot of sense it's really um really raw emotions and and raw actions which do look nonsensical but with the with the context of the larger work and the patience involved to invest into watching the piece really affected me and I started to see kind of these this raw interaction with the performers or in the second work this kind of the shame and power and control and and it it spoke to me because it kind of let me in and it was aggressive but after it kind of disarmed me and I felt like with Miguel starting right away you got this music that just pierces your ears I think half the audience had their fingers in their ears and there's there's profanity and there's screaming and that one for me kind of I started to build up my walls around that work I felt like it was more aggressive than the other works 
Yeah, Nicolas' work deals a lot with uh, discomfort. And, I mean, you can sit away in terms of awkwardness of relationships that he builds, which is a really intentional awkwardness. Uh, it's not like in some shows where you see, you feel that there's just no chemistry between performers. Here, it, It's exactly the opposite, where there is so much chemistry that that awkwardness is really palpable. And But, I mean, it can be really disarming for the audience to to receive something like that uh, I went I went with someone who's not a dancer uh, and after seeing uh, Belle Manière, the second piece she told me that she felt dead inside afterwards and I, I feel that it's it's really to uh, Nicolas uh, I don't know how credit? to say that to Nicolas' credit exactly that he can bring people to such extreme emotional mm -hmm. levels, mm -hmm. but still people are interested in his shows because mm -hmm. he has a lot to say and he has a lot to make people feel. And even when you feel bad after, he took you to such a, a special place. Um, and even with Miguel, like, you know, I'm going to go back to that one because I had a really hard time with Miguel. It was a really challenging work as an audience member and I feel as a choreographer also he took on quite a big challenge uh, from reading some of what he said about the piece he wanted to go uh, in his own discomfort of putting on the stage things that made him really uncomfortable and that he just you know almost didn't want to touch with a stick but he still decided to put that on and that's that's a really challenging thing and it takes a lot of guts in my opinion but still when you first see that when you see the piece um and you see someone like you see um peter james yelling at at ashley watkin uh like really really grotesque stuff i mean it's disarming it's it's rough to watch you know but at the same time is art always supposed to make you feel happy-go-lucky not necessarily, you know, mm -hmm. he, he did manage to create something really strong. And afterwards, when you think back about it and when you think of the creative process that, that came into this work, uh, there is something really interesting there. But as, as a viewing experience, I really disliked Miguel. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Like, I, I felt like I, I just had to scrub myself clean afterwards. Mm -hmm. And... It's. It, I, I think that it's part of the intention yeah. of it. It's something. There is something really honest about that piece that that tries to explore uh, the darker depths of human emotion, and not everyone's going to dare to go there. Yeah, I would. After seeing this, it, because it's so difficult to kind of describe, I would definitely recommend people to go see Nicolas Quentin's work in the future. But just be forewarned, you, you're not going to go see something happy-go-lucky. It's not going to be pleasing. It's going to be intense. <laughs> Bernanier is hilarious. Like, really dark humor, hilarious, but hilarious nonetheless, in my opinion. <laughs> Uh, so that was it for Nicolas Quentin. Yes, that was uh, his retrospective, Trois Romances. And do you want to talk, uh, talk to us a bit about uh, the Rosanova's piece? Yes, his latest work, Diptych, uh, was presented by uh, himself and company Flack at Théâtre Maisonneuve as part of the Danse Danse season uh, last week. And I went to check it out. This is the first time I've seen... Um, Jose Navas's work other than the, the video short that was shot with a thermal camera. Um, and the piece uh, was, 
I also reviewed it for bloodyunderrated.net <laughs> just to make Al happy. Uh, also, it was it was started with a, a kind of prelude by Navas himself. He did a quick solo on stage, just very casual wear, kind of came out and just danced around to uh, pre-recorded. I, I believe it, it sounded like his half of an interview. Um, and I believe it was an interview with, between him and the composer uh, or the, the person who, who set up the music because the composition is all by Bach. It's uh, two different works of Bach's put together. Uh, just little excerpts of it used throughout the work. Um, so you have got a classical score. Anyway, sorry, no, back to the solo. Uh, this voiceover is kind of him basically describing the the work in terms of it being dance for dance sake. Um, the fact that he's putting a lot of trust in his performers, which I found out is because there's a lot of, uh, or there's some improvisation sections in the work. And I do believe that he has a performer-generated choreography sometimes. Um and he, you know, I think his opening line was something along the lines of, if it flops, it flops. It's not brain surgery. Nobody's going to die. <laughs> and for me, this was kind of like a giant justification. And I was like, okay, so what we're going to see here might not be good. And it might not have any meaning is what I kind of took away from that, that opening um, statement. Um, and then we proceed to see the, the company come out. It was a company of, I believe, uh, 10 dancers, five female, five male. And they come out on stage and they're all tall and slender and straight backed and gorgeous. And they use the same uh, kind of basis of movement as, as Navas was using in his solo, which is a lot of like large circling arms, um, just exploring kind of the articulation of the arms as well as uh, as little intricate footwork and kind of. Uh, uh, classical ballet based positions and movements. You see your, your, your uh, rond de jambes and your battements and, and all that stuff in there. And you see your first and second and third position arms. Um, and then it's, it's made in such a way that it's all lines and uh, traded off unison sections and things like that. So it's fairly straightforward. It's fairly neoclassical. Um, and again, it's to box. So it's, you've got the classical music in the background. Um, there's a, a Oh, and they're wearing they're wearing black tights with these very odd white bodysuits that have like three quarter length sleeves and collars. I don't know. I've never seen anything like that before. Uh, and then the piece kind of transitions about halfway through when uh, the Bach music turns into uh, excerpts from his cello work, and it's um, the transitions bizarre. They they kind of do this little slow mo section, and a woman comes out naked. Uh, it stands in the middle of the stage, and then in the next scene, she's alone, and then she's joined with a, with a male dancer who's similarly undressed, except that he has his, his underwear still on, and then he dons a, a dress, a silky, silky short dress, and then the rest of the cast come back out in these dresses in different pastel colors and, uh, and continue on to the second part of the work, which is a, a little bit rounder. Um, it's more, it starts the section more staccato, more quick and fun, and, uh, and then kind of reverts back to the original, um, movement vocabulary, except with less, less strict lines, which is why I say it's a little bit more round. The distance between the performers is not so fixed and, and evenly spaced. Um, but we're never again, kind of, we never refer to again, the naked body. And for me, that was... <laughs> I was like, um, how do you make a neoclassical dance a contemporary dance? You put somebody on the stage that's naked. 
<laughs> I was just kind of frustrated. It tickets. That, right? I don't know. Just sell, sell the tickets to the kids instead and make it an all-ages show. But anyway... Yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's other, there's other things that happen during the piece, but in, in the body of it, it's really like a, a very pretty, I mean, these dancers are phenomenal. Company Flack is composed of some really strong performers and, uh, and they're technically, they're all obviously have a classical background. They're very technically good. And, uh, and you know, the silky dresses, you can't really go wrong. It's very pretty to watch. It's very pretty to listen to the selections from Bach. Um, but yeah, as, as Navas pretty much warned us in the beginning, I, I felt there was no heart in the work at the end. There was no conclusion. There was no story. There was just, uh, it was dance for dance sake. And for that is, you, you know, you can't fault it. That's, uh, that's what it was for sure. I think that's pretty much what to expect with Chosen Navas. And I mean, like the, the quality of his dancers, which is pretty well known, I mean, you go see that, you're going to see beautiful movement in a very classical kind of sense. Hmm. Well, there you go. Now I know. This is my first Navas experience. So that was Diptych by Jose Navas and the company Flack as part of Dance Dance. Do we want to do one more really quick one? Yeah, you want to talk about Fantoie uh, by Isabelle Boulanger Dans le Cirque by Sarah F. Grant? Sure. So this was the, the Tangent Double Bill that was presented last week, and we had Sarah Eve on uh, to speak about it a little while ago. Uh, so the work started with, uh, not hers, the other one, Feintois by Elisabeth Boulanger. Uh, Isabelle. Isabelle Boulanger. And it's kind of like a, a fun dodgeball-inspired gym class uh, experience. All the performers are in kind of dated clothing. You see a couple side ponytails here and there. Um, great group of performers. Like, real, real fun. Like, they, they used their faces and their bodies, and they just, they, they were great. Especially, I wanted to point out there was one dancer in there that kind of blew me away oh noemi dufort campo um she was the shortest in the troupe but she was the biggest she was just dynamite so that was a lot of fun to see um the piece itself had a little bit of humor in it because obviously the context demands it um but i think she elizabeth miss excuse me isabel missed the 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 ticket on some moments she kind of went for this this polished side lighting contemporary music sort of uh, uh really polished contemporary dance look and it kind of it kind of washed away the potential humor that there was there there was this like uh slow-mo section too in this work where i was like this is hilarious but the everything was so somber in the atmosphere i was like this isn't funny though but it it had so much these little moments in here and some of these moments she really took and she really went for and she got a laugh from the audience but there are other opportunities there that i felt like she she went for the wrong the wrong goal but i mean that's just me that's just my uh my experience but obviously she's a hard worker and she's an emerging artist and i hope to see more uh by her by isabelle boulanger with faint toi and the other piece was uh sarah f grant's um dans le cirque and uh this this piece was had some really interesting ideas in it. It was in the round in Monument National. So you, it, the Studio Hidzero Quebec, you could go upstairs, you could go downstairs, you could go wherever you like. The room was very, very dim with kind of like an uh, imperfect circle of a, like a rainbow on the floor uh, from a spotlight. And uh, she and an oboe player uh, kind of danced in and out of it, moved in and out of it. Um, 
and and for me what i kind of grasped was this idea of of distance proximity space um and 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 that was interesting because she really fully explored it with the lighting with the where the audience was where she put her body in relation to the light and where the oboist she she would spin sometimes while playing the oboe which creates a really interesting kind of circular sound because you can hear the sound moving in the space and uh and nice it, effect right there thank you thank you i thought that was pretty good uh, there was a microphone as well, which she, you know, she played with the microphone um, and the oboe and the microphone on its own, kind of getting texture sounds and 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 wind sounds. Um, but the thing is, is like there were there were these really great ideas, and it filled 35 minutes, which was really long for what she had to to bring to the table, and also the the movement content of the work. It is immemorable. I can't tell you right now what she did to move in the work, and it was almost irrelevant. So, so I think, I think it's a it's an exploration. It's a beginning exploration, and I I, I want to see where it goes. Cause it was a really new direction for her. Yeah, and, and I feel that uh, again to go back to what we were saying about in color content. It's interesting when an artist dares something. I feel that's what she did mm-hmm. with Dans le Cercle. Like she really took a a tough direction for her and I, I actually hope she continues because there there is a lot yeah. of potential in that piece. Well there there's a, a lot of a lot of the elements meet really mm-hmm. solidly in the same place and that's refreshing. Um yeah, she just gotta flesh out the each element on its own, I think. If that makes sense. So that was uh, that was Dans le Cirque by Sarah Grant. And Before we move to the big news, oh. I would just like to mention, because I totally forgot after the interview to say, for people who are interested in seeing Peter Troutsmer's piece, SC Myth, Myths and Machines, it's starting tonight uh, at the Studio Hydro-Québec du Monument National uh, until um, November 18th, so on Sunday. Uh, for tonight, Friday, Saturday, it's at 8 p.m. And on Sunday, it's at 4 p.m. Uh, I saw it last year and I really recommend it. I loved it last year and I'm excited to go see it again. Great. And now on to our very, very big news. Unfortunately, everybody listening out there on your old-fashioned radio system, this will be the last time that we're doing a live broadcast from CKUT. Movement Museum, the, the team here, Judy Papillon, myself, Alison Burns, and Jen Doan, we will be joining Joanie Farrand as a, a new Quattro team and launching a new podcast called Dirty Feet on a brand new network called No More Radio. And uh, we release our first episode episode next week. Um, so because of this big change, we'll no longer be broadcasting live on CKUT on Thursday afternoons. Instead, you can check out uh, the website or Facebook page. You can. Uh, the website has not yet been launched, which is a bit tricky. But for now, what we're going to do is we're going to direct you to the Dirty Feet podcast Facebook page. And like I said before, our first episode is launching on uh, Wednesday of next week. That's November 21st. And it's going to be a dance journalism podcast, which we've already recorded, actually. We've recorded it. And it's it's a roundtable discussion between many dance journalists. And I, I use dance journalists as, end quote, end quote. Uh, because it's actually one of the questions which comes up. And the thing is that the quote-unquote dance journalism scene in Montreal is changing really quickly. I mean, it's 
part of what is pushing us towards that new format, the podcast. Uh, reviews will be in blog form now. With uh, Bloody Underrated. With Bloody Underrated. Dot net. Um, and the fact is that it's it's really it was a really interesting discussion uh, to, to have with very talented individuals who have very different opinions about some things. But uh, what came out of that Uh, that discussion was that we all love the dance scene passionately mm-hmm. uh, and we want to see it succeed. So. We want to see it succeed. We want to see it go further. Mm-hmm. And this is a big part of our move. The, the fact that uh, through our new podcast, we will have more time for interviews and we like getting to go deeper with the artists and their process and their ideas and all of that. Absolutely. And some other... Uh, just to be sure, just to be clear, we're not just talking about dance journalism. We couldn't keep that up for a full year. Uh, we're talking about m- basically the same mandate as, a, as as Movement Museum with a few changes. We're going to be talking to artists. We're going to be talking uh, about dance, about movement theater, about movement performance in general. We're going to have conversations on burlesque, on clowning, on everything we can get our hands on. And uh, and actually, that's something to say, too, because we, we have a couple of recordings in the bank already. We are going to be doing a burlesque roundtable discussion. We also have a conversation with uh, George Stamos and Aaron Flynn on basically on teaching and dance, although the conversation does wander to a lot of beautiful areas. And so there's going to be some great content on this new show. So if you take anything away from this uh, this announcement just go to dirty feet podcast at facebook.com and of course we'll put it up on all our movement museum um social media as well so you can find your way there and we hope that you tune in and we hope that uh we'll be talking to you again next week any final words it's been it's, rad it's, yeah it's been rad I, i came on the show uh last july and it, it's i mean it's really sad leaving movement museum i mean we're not We're, we're still uh, aiming for the same things. It's just that we're changing platform. Yeah. But we're still devoted to what we're doing, and we still want to keep going further. And we hope that you guys follow us. Absolutely. So take care, Montreal, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. You're now listening to Dirty Feet, a brand new podcast on No More Radio. Bonjour, oui, vous êtes sur les ondes des pieds sales, aka Dirty Feet podcast on No More Radio. I'm Alison Burns. I'm JD Papillon. Oh, I'm Jen Don. Donor. donor. I'm the donor. This is Joanie on No More Radio. Stay tuned for dance, circus, burlesque, tango, movement, salsa, whatever it is, we're going to move you. What do we know? Podcast hosts? We are a podcast, yeah. We're podcast podcasters. 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 I like that. Podcaster. Cool. For dance. <laughs> How about that? Oh, yeah. Do you want to dance?